care for all Your bros can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys I'm Kate Willett And this is Mohanad Al-Sheikhi and we're back. We're we're back in action. We have a, a great interview for you this week um, with Renee Moya, uh, who works with the LA Tenants Union. Um, we're going to talk about housing stuff. We are going to talk about the Debt Collective. Um, and yeah, I'm really stoked. But first, how's your week going, Mohanan? Good, good. I'm I'm in San Francisco now, uh, and I've just experienced my first earthquake. Today. The, okay so tell me i have not really been following the earthquake situation today what's going on i i mean i like apparently like it's a, it was a big one even the, i mean i'm i'm in fremont so i'm not sure if it's like you know if it was like hit harder like in san francisco but uh it was weird it was like it, it was a, a weird one to experience for the first time you know because like all that happened was i felt the couch was vibrating and i'm so used to new york city and i was like i guess it's construction or something i don't know uh and then i got that's not a very big earthquake i was thinking five is usually like it all shakes but no yeah yeah i guess maybe yeah where i was it wasn't that bad do you know where the epicenter is where the epicenter was they say i mean no idea i mean most people were just like tweeting like from san francisco and being like this is i'm like oh it's a big one i'm just like i have no idea what a big one or a small one feels like this is my first time uh, I, I just can't believe you've cute. never experienced, experienced an earthquake. There's no earthquakes in Libya at all. No, no, no. Uh, we we've been, you know, they were like, you don't, you don't. The Earth does not really complain. I guess there, it's just like whatever, man. You you guys are going through enough. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna also shake and make your <laughs> lives worse. <laughs> <laughs> when, when it shakes, you're like, ah, oh, the U.S. is bombing us again. <laughs> exactly exactly yeah uh but i think in san francisco it's just all the tech pros just like fuck this shit they just keep shaking they're like shit want to shake them all uh yeah i'm sorry if that was an insensitive no absolutely not it's a a real thing Oh my god, it is just very, like, San Francisco to me is just such a hellscape. I lived there for, like, 10 years, and, you know, I have a deep fondness for the city. I'm going there next week, uh, but that city is run by just some real uh, scumbags, like, uh, you know, and I'm not talking about the, the moderate faction, like the people who recalled uh Jessa Boudin but today I saw this thing on Twitter that basically said uh due to police staffing shortages they're uh basically they have 150 new street ambassadors so what this appears to be is a volunteer police force of some kind of like I don't know what, what just does... assholes on patrol or something what does that eat what does that even mean? Like, who... I mean, I think it's like kind of TBD, but it it's it seems like it's people walking around reporting crimes, or I don't know. So yeah, what. it's just like the citizen app, basically, just for 
Yeah, so like real life citizen app. So basically, they have an unarmed response team. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is it's it's already in existence. It it has already been piloted in LA. Uh, There, unarmed response team uh, as an alternative to nine one one. They work with in in LA uh, LAPD to sweep encampments and uh, in SF. Uh, it's like they're sending pictures of homeless encampments to the police and, you know, basically, I, I mean, they're like narcs. They're like, a you know. Oh, basically. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it appears to be like primarily a, uh, a homeless person, a non-housed person harassment tool. Um, uh, so. Oh, so just like the real police. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, here I, I just found an article about it. Um, it's uh, yeah, basic. Yeah, basically, um, they are. Yeah, it's a nonprofit. Urban Alchemy is a nonprofit, <laughs> um, and uh, it's. I guess people are donating to this. I don't know. I mean, it's just like I think California is so known for being liberal but i've been on this beat for a while and it's just some of the most horrific conservatives that are just dressed up in blue like i remember when i was researching uh you know some some listeners may know me from my deep and abiding hatred of the yimby movement um but when i was researching like you know who were you know some of the people that had donated to these politicians in san francisco it was like the same people that had donated to trump you know like Mm -hmm. it's not i think because it's so um you know there's just not going to be a republican running a lot of the time like Mm -hmm. the blue it's just conservative blue versus more progressive blue you know yeah oh yeah yeah it's yeah it's liberal in a way where they're just like you know what we created robots to uh shoot people that way humans do not have to do it yeah it's i mean you say that but it's uh oh it's real yeah i mean it's like so there's basically uh some news came out this week um in the new york times um Mm -hmm. that new york city will uh basically is going to increase surveillance and police presence in subways to combat crime uh basically you know surveillance cameras armed police officers um and you know that this is somehow supposed to make us safer even though recently like when there was like an actual shooting oh yeah subway the police were just like basically chilling they were chilling it was stopped by a civilian i mean i here here's the thing okay nothing makes me feel safer then when I enter a subway station and I'm like, wow, they are just like me. They're also looking at their phones. <laughs> yeah. Cops are like all of us. They're just yeah. so nice. Yeah. But I mean, it's just like, you know, to me, it's just so disheartening to see how basically, you know, like liberals just backed away so quickly from the defund mm-hmm. demand to like oh yeah um, actually now we need five times as much many more cops because you just suggested that we should uh defund them you know and um 
there, people really, you know, you're starting to see a lot of attacks on bail reform in the media. And bail reform is like, you know, I, I mean, a lot of people much smarter than me have pointed this out. But like, if you're out on bail, it's because you haven't been convicted of a crime. So there's yes. this giant push to keep people in jail that have not been convicted of anything just because it's they insane. can't pay. Like, you got people who've been in Rikers, you know, for like a long time, like multiple instances of multiple years in some cases, they have not been convicted of anything. It's insane. I mean, I mean, basically what they're saying, and it's just like they're trying to be subtle about it, but it's it's what we've always known, which is like being poor is is in itself a crime. Yeah, and especially you should, if you're you should, poor yeah. and poor and a person of color, you know, poor and exactly. trans. It's exactly. Really... It 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 makes no sense. Yeah, and it's just like it's yeah, and it's it's because they said that they they're like nine people who were killed on like. Like basically, they're like reporting nine crimes on on the subway. I think one one person was pushed into the subway when a fight was happening. One person was shot on the subway, and you know, and they're like pointing out that there are like nine uh, crimes on like in subway stations that happened this year versus years before the pandemic, where it was like only two per year. And it's just like, oh, that's very interesting numbers. Can we see the numbers where uh, cops have shot people? Because that would that would be interesting too. Yeah, it to would see, that, that uh, would be pretty interesting to see, right? I mean, it's yeah. like it's also just still really low crime. Like, obviously, anytime someone is you know hurt, it's a terrible and sad thing. And I'm not trying to be dismissive of it, but at the same time, like New York is a city where you can walk around at 3 a.m. and it's safe. Yeah. I do it all the time. Like I regularly walk home by myself at three or four at night and I am not even a little bit scared. And I'm a very tiny woman. Yeah, yeah, they're just fine with new ways to just like give cops like more, like, and it's it's so funny because like the push, the pushback here from, uh, from like the city and stuff is not about, is not about, hey, there'll be more cops to just like, we this will make cops very tired if they have to work overtime a lot. And I was just like, do you think that was what well, was bad about it? Is cops are gonna get be tired because so, they have to work more? Yeah, it's just like, really like. And, and here's here. Let me tell you about a really disgusting piece of this. So here is from the article in the New York Times, which I'll link. If New Yorkers don't feel safe, we are failing. Mr. Adams said on Saturday, Mr. Adams being our mayor, Eric Adams, adding that the goal of the new plan was the omnipresence of police officers and the removal of those who are dealing with mental health issues. So that means if you have somebody on the train who is, you know, clearly on substances or is having a mental health crisis, I mean, you know, let's say, a schizophrenic episode or something you know like that's not a cop situation that's like a yeah. like in a just society that's like a nurse situation or somebody who is really experienced in helping people either with you know substance use or with mm -hmm. uh or with you know it's a it just i mean like there have been so many instances of police you know, hurting or killing somebody who was not dangerous at all. They were just, yeah. they had, you know, a mental illness of some kind, you know, 
I mean, it's just horrible, you know? It's, yeah, it's fucking, fucking horrific. And it's also, like, <laughs> the governor, like, this is, like, uh, she has, she pushed the subway plan. And this is the new slogan for the subway plan, which is cops, cameras, and care. And I'm just like, first of all, this is so funny to me that to just not see the irony of putting three K sounds in a row. Uh, <laughs> cops, cameras, and care. All right. Yeah, I'm like, mm -hmm, interesting. So I'm going to get politically incorrect for a second here. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. I don't really know how else to say this. But with regard to Mr. Adams saying, uh, if New Yorkers don't feel safe, we are failing. No, I'm sorry. If you're walking around just feeling unsafe all the time, you have to look inside. You might be a whiny little <laughs> bitch because this is a very safe city. Like, this is, this is a very, very, very safe city. I, I know. And it's just like, it's also one of those things where it's just like, they, like, this city has like, what, 8 million people? Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, of course there will be crime because there's so many fucking people here. Yeah, and it's but... also like if we're concerned about crime, why don't we do something about the underlying causes of crime? You know, poverty is a big one. How about we give people some money and homelessness? If if you're... oh yeah, I mean it's like it's a crime to be homeless in New York City. You know, uh, ever ever increasingly more criminalized on a daily basis. Okay, well, why don't Absolutely. we solve that crime by giving people places to live? Absolutely, 100%. But they, they, they don't want to acknowledge that and they, they don't want to talk about it and they make it sound like these people chose to be on the streets. That's their choice and they should be pushed over. I'm just like, yeah, okay, cool. Push them over into houses, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, like that's one way to get rid... That's one one way to get rid of this issue is to give people uh, houses or apartments or whatever the fuck. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you know, like... Okay, so I'm going to explain something very quickly that is actually a little bit complicated, but I have learned a lot about, like, the plans for housing mm -hmm. for low-income New Yorkers, and it's fucking ridiculous. Like, yeah. you know, to give, like, a concrete example, they're going to, there was a zoning hearing this week that I went to for this community in Queens that is a very working class, very you know, like median income is much lower mm -hmm. than in other parts of the city. And like the affordable housing plan in New York, other than NYCHA, which is like its mm -hmm. whole own topic for another day. We have the largest public housing system in the country. It is in danger of privatization, but I'm just talking about the stuff that's not NYCHA. Mm -hmm. It's like they set aside like a few quote unquote, real sarcastic quote unquote on this one, affordable units for people. Yeah. So it's like, but if you look at like the prices on like some of these like affordable housing, yeah. it's still above two or $3,000. And there's very few for people who you know, don't make a lot for people who are making like, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year. And there's like a basically like a one in six hundred chance of getting one of those. And so, you know, it's like that's the main plan for like housing people in New York City who are poor or like struggling or just even like people who, you know, make fifty thousand dollars, like an amount that yeah it's like a lot for you know other places in the country and of course like, yeah there's just no place to fucking go and people are homeless because 
you know, it's a lot of the time because there's just, they just got priced out of housing. Like that's like the biggest Absolutely. reason. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It, it, I don't know. It, it truly makes no sense. And it's just like, I mean, like we see it all the time, like even with people that we know uh, who are just like, yeah, I had to leave my apartment after, right after the pandemic because I literally can't afford it anymore. No, They I have just so doubled many the friends price. that are moving because their landlord just jacked up their rent between three and $800. And Exactly. it's like, And is I'm, that legal? I mean, so, Yes, it is. yeah, No, like... it is legal. I, and I mean, like some of them, like not even like six, $800, like they just like straight up just like double them. Like, especially like, you know, if you live in an apartment that costs like $3,000 or something, And you have like roommates, even with roommates, if it's $6,000, that's, that's a lot of money. Did you see this article about the rent stabilized units that are being withheld from the market in New York? Uh, I no, I had no idea. oh, yeah. So there was an article this week in the city uh, that more than 60,000 rent stabilized units are now vacant. Uh, there was another article that has that same number above 80,000 and landlords are uh, holding them. <laughs> tenant advocates say landlords are, are holding them for, for ransom, you know, so basically rent stabilized, it means that they can only raise the number that the, raise the Yeah. rent, you know, an amount that's like determined by the, the rent board. And Yeah, the city votes every they vote every year, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, so these are way cheaper in, in some cases, in a lot of cases than uh, market rate housing. And also like one of the advantages of living in these units is you're not going to get these like big surprise rent in increases. Yeah. Another, Yeah. uh, yeah. A new city housing estimate had uh, 88,830 rent stabilized units last year. And so, you know, let's be, let's, let's be devil's advocate for landlords here just for a second. I'm never going to do it again. I, I Let's love say, doing that. let's Yes. just say a certain amount of these are, they're being temporarily repaired and they're going to come back to the market. Certainly Mm-hmm. that's Mm-hmm. going to happen on some of these. And that is like the argument that you'll hear these, you know, jack offs basically make of like, ah, oh, this number isn't real. They're just repairing them or whatever. Yeah, it's probably true about some of them, but also if you're such a fucking slumlord that
the uh, market urbanist that there's actually just like a giant crisis of all kinds of units. But, you know, I, to me, it's like pretty clear that there is enough housing that is if you can pay enough, you got options like there's of course, yeah, I walk by like some of these fucking giant ass luxury towers all the time. And there's always a vacancy sign. It doesn't seem like there's uh it's super hard to find a, a penthouse if you really need no, one. No, I, <laughs> no, I, I, I agree because like the building I live in, I got, cause the one, the, the apartment I live in is like rent stabilized, oh, nice. uh, which is great. And one of the main reasons I'm never leaving uh, until I guess the Supreme court decides that it's not a thing anymore. But I, I, we'll I don't know. Cause I mean, it's, it's TBD if they're even going to take the case, right? Like there's a yeah, lot of people hopefully who want their, their yeah. cases heard by the Supreme court, but that's definitely the hope. You yeah. Know? And, and the thing is like, you know, I, so there has been apartments in my building that has been empty since I moved in, which was like two and a half years ago. And, and I'm like, yeah, of course no one is moved. No one can move in because like literally like right after the pandemic, they just jacked up the prices on these, you know, like they brought them back to the normal price. And it's just like, I would never pay that much for the apartment I live in now because that is insane. And so, and so they're just sitting there. So literally they just rather have them sit there empty for two and a half years than just be like, well, maybe we'll just, you know, lower the prices a bit and like give it to people and we'll make money that way. Well, did you, did we talk about this ProPublica piece last week about like, I don't how, think how, so. yeah, I can't remember if I, I certainly talked about it with a lot of people, but I can't remember if I talked about it with you, but there was a ProPublica expose about landlords in Seattle where they're using software where they're like, oh yeah. 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 So basically, you know, like uh, this, it's calculating for them, like, you know, if it is going to be more profitable to leave units off the market for a while to command a higher rent in the long term. And they're absolutely doing this, like, you know, especially with this. I mean, like they're doing it in general anyway, but, you know, capitalism uh, is, you know, like creating artificial scarcity is not really a, a new concept for for capital right you know it's it's insane to me because like you because you're talking about the software and every time I, I hear these like tech bros talking about like ai and softwares and like how that would make our lives easier every time i hear something that is like software or like algorithm or whatever related i'm just like so far i can only hear it being used for evil so i'm not sure I am buying the make our lives easier. It literally just makes it legal and easier to do crime so far. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's funny because it's not like, I mean, that's, you know, like we're just talking about bail reform. Okay, so you do a, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you do you do like a, a corporate crime, like nothing happens. Yeah. Like you, just, you know, maybe you do wage theft and you have to pay back the wages you stole yeah, yeah, yeah. potentially right but you're not going to jail meanwhile people are going to jail for like stealing like small amounts of stuff that they need oh and that's why absolutely they're, stealing it. they're not like into crime they just need things to live absolutely i mean yeah. like sometimes it's like literally people that would go to jail for like you know not even like doing a crime because they have no other options they just do not understand the system well enough to avoid like mistakes like this and they you know 
and then basically rich people are just being like no we find a way to gamify and like find like these loopholes in the system and we're using them and you do deserve to be in jail because you're not that smart yeah and it's just like i'm just trying to live like you i'm also trying not to to pay less uh and they're like no you can't you can't do that it's just it's just for us to keep money um but the software is insane to me because it's just like to i don't know like i i just put like I'm sure there are people who have found a defense for this. Like they're, they're like defending it. So they can like keep defending landlord. And I just want to hear what having a software between landlords to tell them when to, you know, how to, you know, overprice and like how to kick people out and do all of that stuff. How is that a good thing? I'm just trying to find how that is okay. Well, people like will just say that it's their that. right to do it, that it's always happened, that before it was a software, business owners were just talking to each other, just, you know, looking online to see what things are, you know. I mean, it's like fundamentally housing as a for-profit enterprise is always going to leave people unhoused. It's always going to leave people like, you know, living in substandard conditions because, I mean, it's like, look, you know, I would like to see a world where housing, medical care, you know, just completely decommodified, but like even short of that, like just some fucking laws, like good cause eviction, you know, like yeah, it's just of like, course, yeah. yeah, so you can only, I mean, it's just like, it's insane, you know, just a vacancy tax. We just pass a vacancy tax so that it becomes prohibitively expensive for landlords to leave these units off the market you know mm. just just some basic regulation right and it's just like all these like simps will be like you know oh this is like my prop this is my property or landlords can do whatever we want or this is a supply problem and if we build you know, 800 million new luxury apartments, then the prices will come down. No, it's, it's, I mean, it's like, you're going to need the government to make some laws and to also house a lot of people. Yeah, because like, if you provide, yeah, because the idea is like you provide a lot of supply, so that way it will go lower. I'm like, that only makes sense if you provide a lot of supply and that supply is can be met by people. Like people can actually afford the supply. Exactly. I mean, this uh, is other what than I, that. This is I I a hundred percent agree. There was a report uh, a couple months ago that basically like the vacancy rate for New York apartments was like, you know, it was like less than one percent for apartments that were less than fifteen hundred dollars, and it was like twelve percent for apartments that were twenty three hundred or more. That makes a lot of sense to me because it's like, yeah, yeah, when there's that like lower priced housing stock, there's so many people competing for that. You know, there's so many people that that's all they can afford. And even Absolutely. for people who can't afford more. Yeah. A lot of people like, let's say, even if I could afford to spend $5,000 a month on an apartment, I'm never going to fucking do that because I'd rather never. kill myself than never. set $5,000 on fire by giving it to a landlord. Absolutely. Yeah. But... Literally was just talking about that yesterday. What is just like, is like it, if I literally had $10 million in the bank right now, I'm not going to pay $5,000 for rent. I don't want to do that. Cause that makes no sense. It's more of like, it's more like a logic thing than just like money and being able to afford it. And the crazy thing about like, you know, like uh, these, like them keeping it vacant, it's just like they can afford to, you know, that's the, the other issue is that they can just afford to not 
have people be in it forever if they want to like several years which i guess the other issue you know is that it's never gonna go down unless you they are being forced to like yeah. i don't know what what law should be applied like i'm like is the government being like okay you if you do not find someone to live here in like a year we're gonna fucking take this yeah i mean you could do it in a lot less than a year or two i mean like that's basically what a vac- vacancy tax is well no you're talking about expropriation and like julia salazar who is in our state senate like we have people starting to call for expropriating vacant properties but you know like you could even just make it that they have to pay landlords basically have to pay the rent amount of tax to, you know to yeah. to keep that property vacant and that would already make the the numbers go down a lot but yeah you know there is just basically yeah. like this huge sort of ideological conflict between like you know if you build a lot of unaffordable housing will that make the prices go down and mm-hmm. you got a lot of people starting to say yes it will and you know there's people like me who think yeah no it doesn't and that is like i mean that's uh, our observable reality too like there's just <laughs> there's a lot of exactly like, no brand new luxury places and you know in terms of like research on this it's complicated there's a lot of research saying a lot of different things and there's no like there just isn't a consensus position like there's you know it's not yeah these kind of like developer and landlord simps love to sort of push this narrative like yes we know that no we really don't you know like we really really don't like it does we definitely know that if you build stuff that costs a certain amount that and you add supply there that it you know will make rents go down a little tiny bit like for Mm -hmm. similar housing stock but like in terms of like how it affects stuff that is like priced much differently, like how a five thousand dollar apartment affects the price of a fifteen hundred dollar yeah. apartment. I mean, it's really complicated, and it's still being looked at in a you know by a lot of researchers. And it's I don't know these hacks. <laughs> I could talk about this all day, and I won't. But no, I, I know. Yeah, I know. And I mean, it's. it's... <laughs> Yeah, I truly can't like, and I, and I see you argue with people on the internet about it. And sometimes I'm just like, I look at it and I'm just like, okay, here's what I don't get. Are these people like landlords who are like arguing or are they just like people who just love landlords so much that they're just like willing to argue on their behalf? It's insane to me. Because like clearly you're not, both, yeah. yeah. Because like no one has who has been through not finding a house or like not being priced out of housing will make these arguments. It's people who either, and sometimes I I, I feel like it's, it's people who do not even, are not even affected by it. Like they don't even live in states where that happens. You're just like, yeah, I live in Texas in the middle of nowhere and I pay $200 for my mortgage and I have an opinion about this. And it's like, yeah. bro, shut the fuck oh, up. Oh, there was this one guy, he's like one of the main kind of super vocal MBAs. Mm-hmm. Yimbies want to abolish single family zoning and single family homes mainly because they think that's a wasteful way of living. Which, to be fair, 
I'm not Amazing. against doing that. Like in a fucking, in my communist utopia, yeah, probably that's not the best use of lands. And it would be like, you know, very ideal to have like beautiful social housing in cities where there's like a lot of chance to be with our neighbors and community. I'm all for it, right? But like, yeah, these, these guys want to do it all on behalf of like developer profit. Anyway, the punchline to this is that this guy made a video for his realtor thanking him for finally uh, hooking him up with his seventh no, single family home no, this is the seventh no, single family home no. he's owned these people are so rich it's insane you know and like meanwhile you got like tenants just in new york that are like okay they're withholding basically ninety thousand rent stabilized that is places that insane we could live. to me yeah <laughs> yeah that is insane that's like a Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, 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 totally, yeah. I'm very actually excited. This is kind of a good lead into our, uh, our guest this week, um, who is uh, an organizer with the LA Tenants Union. So we're going to be talking about some of the organizing that LA Tenants Union has been doing. Um, they are, yeah, they've done really amazing work. Um, you know, both, uh, well, I'm going to let Renee tell us all about it, but he's great um but before oh, we yeah. segue into our interview you you wanted to tell me about a horrible guy right oh <laughs> i mean it's funny because uh i feel like this is the type of people that we were just talking about describing uh but it is now the prime minister of the uk oh my god liz truss she was so, i saw something so funny which is that uh, like a memoir of her is like coming out in december like that is it was so supposed fun. to be is, like is, for is, like her is, like oh prime minister you know <laughs> she's not even gonna be the prime minister is the prime minister like two pages like is the the book two pages what's going on here it's just like no, I, yeah I, I came into work and then i realized i had to leave anyway well i think times. it was like you know it was like written as if she had been doing the job for a while. I don't know. They'll probably pull it or something like that. That is but... so funny to me. Oh my god! And it's also and it's also. Hey, you know what? It's it's very progressive that they're literally like letting every uh, group of people get to experience what it's like to be the prime minister. You know, they're like, no more men. Uh, we have a woman who's going to be the prime minister for like a, a a bit, and then we have the first, uh, first uh, Indian. Uh, British person to be the prime minister. I think this is what I'm, which is this guy. Uh, yeah, it's it's so funny that he's like the prime minister now, and it's like his name is Rishi, and he's you know he's he's also gonna be the third UK uh, leader in this in seven weeks, seven weeks. That's incredible to me. Insane. But I was yeah. like reading about him, doing more research about him. I'm like, wow, how did this guy land this job? Because like. Obviously, whenever like you have like a person of color who like takes in like charge or something or like a woman or something, you have these people who are like, we will not look into this. We're just going to celebrate the fact that this is a minority who's in charge of stuff, which I feel like people kind of did with the woman who got elected to become the president of Italy, who's a fascist. And they're like, but it's a woman. So that's good enough. Oh, Hillary Clinton was like, it's always a win when a woman is elected. No, it's not. All right. So uh, we just have a couple of quick little plugs. So there's an organization um, called Comedy Gives Back, and that is a 
a safety net for the comedy community and basically they help people with mental health services crisis support chemical dependency treatment um and you know they're they're really great i mean you know it's 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 nice comedy is is a lot of freelancers so it's it's nice that there is an organization that people can turn to if they need a little bit of financial help in, in a mm -hmm. crisis so you know visit their website comedygivesback.com and learn about what they do and please consider making a donation if you are possibly able to i know times are tight and things are hard um but yeah i just wanted to plug those those two um Sweet. organizations because we we love them we love the work that they're doing yeah all right uh that's it uh anything else before we segue to our interview uh no all good to me amazing thank you so much mohanan thank you please don't fuck your reply guys just listen to reply guys how are you i am here with renee christian moya uh who is an organizer from the debt collective the los angeles tenants union and also my twitter friend welcome to the show <laughs> hey how's it going um so yeah i first encountered you uh because you have been on the anti yimby beat it seems like for some time um as you know i'm imagining as like originally part of your organizing with the la tenants union um any can you tell me a little bit about what la tenants union is what you guys are doing and how it interacts with all of the larger threads of this housing conversation right now that's a big question should have asked him individually a, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, it kind of is a big question. Um, well, first off, I would actually say, I don't even know if I, I mean, I would not describe myself like as anti-union, but we could talk about that in a bit. Okay. Um, in terms of the LA Tenants Union, though, you know, like I think that the, the Tenants Union itself has been doing, well, I've been doing work with the Tenants Union for something like the last five or six years. Um, and the Tenants Union itself has existed for slightly longer than that as well. Um, yeah, really like the the work that the Tenants Union has really been all about from its inception really is to uh, defend, uh, number one, the ability of working class communities, of working class communities of color to stay in their homes in a, a city like LA, a city as contested, right, as LA, uh, and against the, the 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 power of the real estate industry, um, organized as landlords, as uh, realtors, um, as developers, right, in our city, which have been causing the displacement um, in at Los Angeles. I should also say that, you know, the Tenants Union really does um, firmly believe in the necessity to build alternative institutions, alternative political institutions outside of, you know, spaces such as City Hall. And I have to say that given the the crisis that we're seeing in LA at the moment, which I know we probably will talk about at some point, um, that seems a, a project that is uh, more urgent than ever before. I would agree with that. I was kind of joking when I said anti-Yemi, but, you know, there is definitely this thread in the housing conversation right now that you know, all we have to do is build more housing and it doesn't matter what income level it is. But of course, developers want to make the most profit possible. So it tends to be 
housing for the wealthiest people that they can hope to attract and or investors. Uh, why, in your opinion, is that not the right approach or not, not a sufficient approach? I'm going to just say what uh, the the one tagline that always upsets a lot of EMBs when I say, you know, housing for whom the question of housing for whom is is so important and or central to like, I think that the, the politics and opposition to the Yimby line, you know, I always like to tell people and this is why I think, um, you know, I, I, I would want to pull back from calling myself anti Yimby if only because, you know, I remember a time like 10 years ago, when whenever we would confront uh, as tenant organizers, as housing, as homelessness activists, uh, uh, advocates, um, and activists, you know, when, whenever we'd confront um, actual true nimbyism, right, trying to fight back against like the development both of um, shelters for the unhoused, or more importantly, permanent supportive housing for that for the unhoused, uh, housing for the poor, um, the creation, the 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 really the the beautification even of public housing. You know, a lot of folks would oftentimes use the the line, right, uh, of being, yes, in my backyard about these different types of projects, right? But that was a very particular sort of vision, yeah, right? That's it was true, vision yeah. Of, yeah, it was basically talking about building housing for the poor, housing for the for the 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 houseless, uh, building housing for the working class, right? And what I think is is very uh reductive and frankly, um, you know. I guess what, what really kind of sets us in opposition, frankly, in, 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 in on this question ends up being the question of whether or not we should, who we should be prioritizing, basically, when it comes to the construction, the development of this housing. Uh, you know, I think a lot of Yimbis, not all, but I think most Yimbis actually oftentimes want to elide that, right? They want to either, you know, mystify the question or pretend as though the type of housing that is being built, where it's being built, um, who owns it, et cetera, that those questions don't matter. And that if all we did was just simply build, 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 we're going to be able to resolve the the crisis, uh, the ongoing housing crisis that, you know, we often say within the tenants union is essentially a capitalist housing crisis, right? That is ultimately the issue um, at hand. And so, you know, to me, it is about a kind of a, 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 a you know, a, a little bit of obfuscation about the problem. If the problem is ultimately a problem of, of you know, of the weakened power of, of the working class, then simply ignoring the, the the class and caste and racialized composition of our cities is like, you know, is, is to ignore the actual root causes of the housing crisis. That is ultimately what I think I, I like to push back against or I think is necessary to push back against. Yeah, I, I would agree with all that because, you know, I mean, like, it's definitely, it is true that whenever there is, like, you, you know, going to any discussion of where um, housing for unhoused people might go, like, there are all of these, like, you know, really, I will just go ahead and say evil people that are like, nope, not, not next to me, and it's really, really fucked up and horrible, but... You know, I don't really see that as like a whole different universe from like, you know, just saying, okay, well, we're not going to do anything to house on house people for uh, 30 years till it, you know, till, till the market, you know, brings the prices down or whatever. Like to me, it's still rooted in the same kind of capitalist and also just sort of like jerky worldview i know that's that's not a marxist term but it's just it's just being a jerk you know so yeah um 
So, you know, with tenant organizing, like I think a lot of people think about tenant organizing as being, you know, on a building level, something like a rent strike. Um, but, you know, with like the LA Tenants Union, you guys are, are doing stuff, I think, on that level, but also on a wider scale. What does it look like? What are some of the projects and initiatives and whatever else you're working on? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the tenants union, I think, is, has always seen itself very um, actively as, you know, we're not like a housing rights organization, right? Yeah. We're a tenants rights organization. We're a tenant power organization, by which we mean that the subject of our political work is the tenant, right? Uh, the tenant as a as a as a as a subject, a political subject that does not control their own housing. That can include folks who are renters. That can include folks who are uh, you know unhoused entirely. Uh, anyone who does not control their own housing is is someone that we consider a tenant. And so for us, organizing around tenant issues really means organizing around the whole person, right? Organizing around the needs and the necessities, the 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 contradictions that that tenants face on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, what does that mean primarily or oftentimes? That means trying to stop people's evictions, right? It means trying to stop their evictions. It means trying to get, get them better habitability conditions. It means trying to get them fairer rents. It also though means much more than that. It has often actually meant stopping ice raids in our in our communities. It has also meant, for example, providing food uh, parcel deliveries to tenants in the middle of the pandemic when a lot of folks who were immunocompromised couldn't go and do that for themselves. It meant doing that. It means, like today, for example, you know, doing a little bit very basic forms of mutual aid, where I took a neurodivergent tenant, I picked him up from the airport because there was no other way for for him to actually navigate the whole process at the airport. I had dropped him off a couple of weeks prior to go see his family. It really means about building community at the worm's eye level, right? And so for me, when we talk about the kind of work that the Tenants Union does, it really does ultimately come down to that, that idea, that concept of building community. In fact, and I think I want to really kind of emphasize this point, there's like a criticism, you know, and I think it's a valid one around the concept of the notion or the or the use or misuse of the term community right it's a it's a criticism even the left has oftentimes lodged um when it comes to 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 you know um urbanization urban politics etc it's something that goes it's it goes far back but it's precisely the lack of community it's precisely the atomization of our communities it's precisely the fact that people are not meant to interact with each other it is precisely the fact that they are not meant to deal with themselves as neighbors and as people uh, who are again suffering from the same kind of um problems in their lives that we are attempting to to build an alternative to right and so whenever we talk about what we're we're trying to do it's we are trying to actively build community and 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 i mean that in the deepest way possible as a lot of tenants have actually told us in the past i've heard this come from the mouths of different tenants all across the city that i've organized with they always say the same thing they say i didn't know how to be a neighbor and I didn't know how to be a neighbor until I met the, I met you folks in the tenants union and until we organized as tenants. That ultimately is the actual project that we're trying to build within the tenants union. It's to build community, to make neighbors, but it's not just so we could have like a happy-go-lucky life, right? It's rather to build power. We build power by by trying to break across that, that alienation, that separation, and really get people together to be able to demand much more. Uh, ultimately, to build a land a world, you know, without landlords. 
Yeah, I am struck, just like kind of a side note here, I'm, I'm struck by how often you're using the word power because I think that there's this thing where like as leftists we are sometimes averse to talking about power and trying to gain power so that we could do right. the things that we want to do, like abolish landlords, you know? Um, but so, okay, you know, in terms of like what a like a vision for housing that you would like to see both in the short term like things that could happen in the next couple of years and like what like a, a good society looks like longer term how, how do you see this question yeah, I mean, I think in the in the short run, it means expanding the 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 ability that the power of tenants with respect to their individual landlords, right? That to me is what I mean whenever we talk about tenant protections, right? Ultimately, tenant protections are a way of being able to kind of reverse weaken really the power of landlords with respect to to their tenants, right? That the the landlord's ability to be able to to evict them to raise rents to whatever eye watering levels etc so i in the, in the short run it would be that it would be the ability the 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 necessity for more tenant protections it would mean things like anti harassment ordinances it would mean things like universal rent control it means things like you know universal just cause protections it means more robust sort of enforcement of existing protections those are like policy fixes that i actually see as both short to medium run sorts of um uh, policy ones on a like I think on a more organizing kind of terrain or in that kind of terrain of battle I think it really is to make obvious or to make plain to people that there are alternatives right it means looking at different versions or variations of housing without landlords it may be things like you know like cooperatives like right now I know tank in um in northern California um that's what they're organizing right now for, right? They're demanding essentially um, the, the creation of a, of a co-op in one of the buildings that they're organizing. It means examples like that. It means things like the eminent domaining of a uh, a previously, uh, you know, deed-restricted affordable housing complex hillside villa in Chinatown. It's a, a building that we want the, the city of Los Angeles to buy and or eminent domain, take off the hands of the speculative market and put it basically converted into public housing into some form of social housing, right? So in the short to medium run, that's what I wanna see. I wanna see more, you know, I want a hundred flowers to bloom when it comes to those kind of examples that we're setting of the power of tenants to be able to fight back. And ultimately, what I hope to see is like that those kind of more short to medium term policy victories around tenant protections, things like rent control and the like on the broader sort of horizon. We're really talking, you know, the development of social housing, true green social housing, social housing for everyone who needs it. And frankly, also the socialization of housing, or at least the beginnings of it. When people talk about social housing, they like to talk about the thing that already exists, right? Or the, the end goal, the thing that will exist. And to me, the process is as important as the, the actual end goal, right? The end goal is a little bit is a is a lovely horizon, but what we really need to see is housing land, you know, altogether being taken off the speculative market. How we do that is through a process of socialization. Part of that has to, by necessity, I think, involve the state doing it. But I think there is some there is an active role for a burgeoning tenants movement to be able to, you know, take that power into their own hands as well. One thing that I think can be really frustrating to me personally is that 
like leftist opinions on this are all over the place like everything from like let's literally overthrow the government to build more market rate housing it's huge whereas like you know if you look at something like healthcare, you know medicare for all like at the, it took a long time but like at this point you know definitely by 2020 like basically everyone on the left had that position you know the single payer free universal health care free i mean as in like supported by you know taxes but you know it's like no paying at the point of service anymore you know totally cut out the insurance industry and i think that like one thing that feels really hard is that i you know housing it seems like there's just like so it's so fucking complicated and it is i mean there's just people take advantage of that uh complication to you know sort of like <laughs> you know basically all these different versions of like no 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 but you don't understand landlords are good actually it always comes down to that you know but um i don't know what do you think is like a way that there could ever be like at least you know enough of a um, cohesive vision that you could start to see maybe even you know left-leaning liberals get on board in the way that people have with like medicare for all that is a great question it's i think like it's an organizing question right but it's like organizing the organizers to some extent right or organizing the left such as it exists right and my response to that maybe is a little bit it's not complicated it's just it's not an easy like response my see, part of me actually the the flippant response is to say that opinions are cheap like i don't care if you write for a quote unquote socialist magazine for example and your politics on ho housing are basically market oriented you know like housing policies I, like to me that's not that's not the work of building anything that's that's a that's a 500 page you know 500 word like essay in a in a magazine i don't think that's necessarily that doesn't matter right i think the the the, the way in which we get past the opinions and to the things that actually matter is basically just by by building, right? By organizing. And so what I take a lot of, you know, hope in, and this is par partially why I I don't really, I try not to engage in quote unquote, you know, to, at length too much in on debates online these days, especially in the last like few months. I think I've become less of like, less, I, I'm less interested in fighting with people who are never gonna be on my side and more interested in the idea of like, well, how are we building on the ground level the, the actual base that we need of people that we need to be able to fight for the things that we need, right? Uh, and so to me, it's a question of leadership, right? And if there is a militant and growing movement of tenants that is already kind of building the alternative and the alternative coheres around a politic that is not market-driven, that is about the power of, of, of tenants being able to, to you know, change conditions on the ground, to change facts on the ground themselves. If it means tenants being uh, militant and being able to push um, their elected official, officials and their landlords to do the right thing, right? And I don't mean that like in the sense that like empowering our elected officials, I actually want to be, be very clear, our entire work is premised on disempowering you know, a lot of these these institutions that take our agency away, right? The, the like, you know, folks from marginalized communities, uh, tenant groups, whatever. I think that ultimately that is 
the 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 thing that gives me hope, right? Knowing that there are already thousands of households in Los Angeles that are, are organized within the tenants union. That at on any given night, and I literally mean this, on any night of the week, there are you know tons of tenants being meeting either in their buildings or they're meeting in their neighborhood associations, <clears throat> in their in their locals, meeting in in you know in in community and like in in uh, in committees from the different locals, knowing that that is what's happening is ultimately the thing that gives me a little bit of hope, right? And so again, once again, I wanna restate, I think opinions are cheap. I'm glad that there are some folks who, you know, have platforms that they've kind of built, for example, um, online or through different media platforms or what have you, but ultimately that's as nothing, uh, you know, when faced or confronted against the actual organized militant movement that we've managed to build in the last few years. And frankly, we're also attempting to help others build in other places. And so within the Tenants Union, for example, we, we founded the Autonomous Tenant Union Network, which has you know dozens of, of either new or growing tenants unions across the country, across North America. We are in constant dialogue with movements beyond the, the fight around uh, tenancy in, in other countries as well, in Latin America and in Europe. That is the actual movement such as it exists. Everything else is hot air. And sometimes I have to remind myself a little bit of that, right? That ultimately the hot air doesn't matter. It's an, a lot of opinion making and that's about it. I can't control the discourse, but I can certainly control what our, um, what my energies go into, what my partner's energies goes go into because he's also a tenant organizer. That is what I can I can control. And when I focus on that, I get really, really hopeful, frankly, about where we're headed. I think that sounds like a really good and healthy and true perspective. And I am 99% in agreeing with you. Here's where I don't agree. Like, I think that, you know, I, I mean, like climate change is, th is like the biggest example of, of this where like, to me, it seems like, uh, part of the thing that makes it hard to, uh, generate like the political will to do exactly what we need to really do is that there is like such a powerful uh, like you know misinformation disinformation I hate all these words but you know campaign from the powerful to you know convince us that the problem isn't really that bad and like you know it works on conservatives in a really obvious way but it also works on liberals because, you know, we'll like see something like, you know, Joe Biden's deal and okay, you know, like there's a little bit of uh, incremental progress in there. But if you look at what any scientist is saying about that, it's like, no, if we do this plan, like if we do, if we follow this to the letter of the law, like we're still all gonna <laughs> be like completely right. fucked. Like we need more than this, you know? And I definitely think that, you know, like I agree with you that opinions are cheap and, you know, but on a, on a certain sense, like I do feel frustrated by like the fact that there seems to be, you know, just really like thinking about, you know, for example, like I am very concerned about uh, private equity, like buying mm -hmm. so many of the you know, both both homes and apartment buildings. I think, like, you know, homes in especially the Sun Belt, they're buying at an extremely rapid rate. And like, 
You know, I just, <laughs> to me, it seems like people really need to start to understand and believe that this is, is an issue, you know, like, because we do need to generate the political will to, to do something about that. And, and it can't just come from, you know, people who are leftists, like that's not enough people at this time, you know? But I agree with you. Like, I think there's like, it's very bizarre. Cause like, there's like a, like, a, again, kind of a quote unquote urbanist fundamentalism that really amounts to a form of corporate landlord denialism, right? In the same way that talk about climate change, denialism, den denialism is a real political issue. To me, corporate landlord denialism is also a real issue, right? The, the growing power, I think, of, of, of the, the real estate, like, or rather of like of private equity specifically right in in our housing markets i think is very much an undeniable thing but the, the the reality of it is that not only do like those of us on the left i think who have, who saw this issue coming down the pipeline years ago you know we started seeing the the after effects of this right after the the 2008 housing crisis right like so for for those of us who are old enough and actually been around the block you know long enough to me the issue of like the growth of private equity of the of the increasing financialization of our housing market is something that's been clear as day from prior to 2008 and certainly after it right the thing is this those folks the the, the kind of like the 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 corporate landlord denialist in a way denialists in a way are really swimming against a tide that i think is only growing stronger i think the average person on the street actually already agrees with us whether yes some of them are because they're nimbies and they just want to use it to concern troll but frankly i think a lot of other folks who are just deeply concerned with the fact that homelessness is not getting any better in fact it's it's worsening in a lot of ways that they can't buy a house that they can't now even afford their bloody rent that their landlords even when they're paying a pretty penny for their apartment complexes have them in terrible habitable you know unhabitable conditions i think these are all things that people recognize they know that those conditions are not necessarily good, right? So I would say that at least on the question of, of the growth of private equity and corporate landlords, I think we're there. We're not to the point where it's become, um, how could I put it? It's not at the point where your you know, national politicians like the president are going out there and saying this is a growing problem, right? In the way that at least climate change is broken through in that way. Do we need that? Yes, I actually do think that we need that. The most exciting thing about the 2020 election was the fact that you had both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders talking about things like national rent control for crying out loud, you know, that they were talking about private equity. I think that is a, a, a demonstrable change in the way that people have talked about housing in this country forever. I think that's a good thing. Now, on the broader question of whether or not we think market mechanisms are going to solve the housing crisis, I also don't think that people are necessarily on the side of the people who believe that, you know, a supply side logic alone will do it. They will oftentimes point at polls that say, oh, the majority of people think that building housing is going to, you know, is necessary to solve the crisis. I think a lot of leftists also, though, like at least a lot of folks would say, okay, well, building new housing is obviously going to be a part of, of that issue because yeah, we recognize I think that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I'm a little bit more skeptical of development, absolutely, but not in the sense that we need to, we don't need to build housing. We absolutely need to build more housing. There's a lot of- Like you said, for who? Yeah, for who? Number one, who is it for? Like, is it the kind of housing that we need? Also, not only like in terms of like its class characteristic, is it like green? Is it in the places that it needs to be? What all of those different issues like matter. But yeah. to me, ultimately, if you're asking me, do I think that, you know, a, a, a preponderance of housing development uh, being built by, you know, 
again, these market actors who only care about their profit motive and who only therefore were, will, will build for and or rent to, right? Because like the, the question of not only what kind of housing we're building, but how much power we, we allow landlords to have over the determination of who gets to live in their housing, those things are not things that I'm going to say, oh yeah, you know what we need, what we need here is the market mechanism to be able to solve that. I don't think it will solve it. That's that's ultimately the crux of like the, the differentiation in our politics. Has that question been necessarily resolved? No, I actually don't. I think a lot of people, a lot of definitely a lot of like centrist liberals themselves would question that kind of narrative, number one. But number two, even if they thought that that was right, we're in no different place, in my view, to where we would have been 10 or 20 years ago, because ultimately we've always been told that the housing market, the private market, was going to solve the housing crisis. This was literally the kind of arguments that, that were deployed against the destruction of like slum housing. It was the kind of arguments that were deployed for the suburbanization of housing. It these have all, The market has always been sold as the way in which uh, we're going to be able to house people, people equitably and with dignity. We know that it's bullshit. We've always known that it's bullshit. The fact that there are now, there's a new acronym to be able to describe that age-old attempt at you know at you know putting the lipstick on a pig, I think it's kind of neither here nor there. Now again, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have to combat a lot of these arguments discursively. I mean, obviously, as you well know, I do it all the damn time. I'm having these like you know fights all the damn time, but I do it in I think more limited ways these days than I used to for only the reason that number one, this is a, a tale old as time. Number two, I don't think these arguments are as salient as they think that they are. And number three, I think ultimately we do have the wind in our sails in different ways. It may not look like it when you're on Twitter.com battling, you know, a, a hundred troll or bot accounts or whatever, but it certainly looks like it from the perspective of what's happening in a place like LA right now. I do think actually that we're in a good place. And I think we're increasingly in a better place than we assume in other parts of the, of the country as well. Am I shocked? That market, you know, uh, you know, laundering market ideology is uh, popular among centrist liberals. No, I mean that's that's exactly where we were ten or twenty years ago. The only it, difference it's is always we, there. Yeah, we didn't have an acronym for it. That was yeah. It. I I agree with you on all that. I guess you know, if I'm gonna go most full on like storm freshman uh, freshman dorm stoner level conversation. <laughs> yeah. Let's here. do it. You know, it's like we have reached a point of uh, crisis in capitalism. I mean, it's been there for a lot of people for a long time, but now it's like overwhelmingly for most people, you know, I mean, like there's still people that are doing fine, but like way more than 50% of people are not doing fine anymore, you know, and like historically, there's only like a couple ways. <laughs> that that can go and one is really good and one is really horrible, you know? And I get concerns that, you know, I, to me, like, obviously like leftist um, building power has uh, never been easy and has a lot of the time, you know, been crushed. I'm not saying that now this particular moment is like, is special in any way, but, you know, to me, like, as much as it does feel like, uh, you know, leftists, in some sense, have the wind in our sails because a lot of people are, um, you know, like, hey, I can't fucking pay my student loans. I can't afford 
a place to live anymore. Like I can't have a child because it's just completely inaccessible to like think about paying for another individual, you know, all this stuff. Uh, like, you know, it's, it, it's like, we're just seeing like this kind of, uh, like doubling down, you know, of every, you know, sort of conceivable alternative to that, like both, you know, in terms of like rhetoric, but also like, you know, politicians like, like Trump or, or DeSantis or these like, you know, kind of, or even, even people that are to the right of that, like these characters who are like, yeah, I'm a fucking fascist. Cool. Isn't that any, you know, I mean, it's sickening, but it just feels like, you know, the stakes in this moment are particularly high because the, the like centrist liberal future, as much as like, I would hate it, it would certainly be better than fascism, you know, and it, it's like, I don't know, it just feels like, uh, hey, you know, there's there's no time like the present, there's some uh, urgency around this stuff, you know? <laughs> I know, you know, like... I have I have like a very long possible answer to give to this. I'm very long winded, as you can already tell. But I love I, it. I love your vibes. <laughs> thank yeah. you. I mean, I think I think um, how could I put it? The, the 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 pessimism the pessimism of the intellect side of me always likes to recall my history a little bit in my head and remind myself that you know the his the historical rise of fascism was predicated on uh, the, the the earlier. Uh, you know, kind of rise and militancy of like a burgeoning working class movement. Fascism was a reaction to that. And for all of the growth that we might have on the ground, we're going to see a counter sort of reaction to that. Yeah. Right. We saw it with BLM in 2020 uh, and the mass, the largest protests in the history of this country then being matched in the very same year and in, in reflected, by the way, in a lot of the, the, the urbanists, the carceral urbanism that you're starting to see really kind of taking a hold within Yimbyism that I actually don't think didn't have to be the case and, and has ended up being the case among a lot of quarters of that um, side of, of Twitter, if you will, you know, that you saw then a reaction and a, a kind of a crisis around quote unquote law and order and the necessity for the cops to basically crush, you know, whatever the, the urban insurrection essentially in all but name, right? You, you had that. I know as well, the pessimism of the intellect side of me also knows that given a, a, a chance to, to, to either choose socialism or barbarism and barbarism being fascism or anything even slightly to, to the purported left of it, right? Uh, a, a popular right, um, you know, the alt-right, whatever the hell you want to call it, right? The populist right, choose having to choose between socialism and that, that the petty bouge, right, in this country, in, in the West, generally, historically, and not only in the West, in, in Latin America and other parts of the world, has been very, very happy to throw the baby out with the bathwater, including, in fact, liberal democracy itself, very often to be able to do that. So I I recognize absolutely that anxiety that you have. It is a real anxiety. It is an anxiety that I think is it necessitates a realistic appreciation for both where we are and what the analysis is of a, like the composition of forces on our side, how strong are we, how organized are we, and also on the other side, what are the what are the, the interests kind of arrayed against us? The, the, uh, the powers against us are always going to be very um, daunting because it is organized capital. It is going to be, you know, the police forces. It's going to be the, the majority of politicians in this country. Those are always going to be the opposition. But then behind them, of course, you have to also look at who are the 
you know, the, the petty bourgeois sort of like interests that for the most part have tended to and wanted to align behind these kind of other forces. That's the reality. I don't want to, I don't want to pretend that that is not the case. What do we have though? <laughs> we, the only thing we have against that, and we always have, and again, you know, to quote Lula quoting, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, Jesus Christ, I'm forgetting his name. Um, Chilean poet Neruda quoting Neruda, you know, that, you know, you can, you could cut down all the flowers, but you can't, you know, you can't stop or arrest the coming of the spring. I think ultimately we always have to remember that our, the history of the left has always been, unfortunately, of a lot of flowers being mowed by these forces. And yet we keep coming back. Right. Yeah. Look, we, we lived through the end of the cold war when people were told that the left and socialism was dead yeah. and we're very alive, you know, we're still very much alive, baby. And I think that's ultimately the only thing that I think uh, it, it reminds me of never uh, allowing kind of the pessimism to overwhelm basically my ability to be optimistic. And the optimism is in everything I've said already before, that we are more organized than we have been for a long time. There's a lot of energy uh, in our movement. We shouldn't allow, of course, incoherence and, and you know, infighting really kind of uh, allow us to, it, it shouldn't stop us, right, from properly doing the work that we need to do because there are no shortcuts here. The only thing we have available to us is to organize and that's it. Yeah, I, I, that is a, a beautiful and complicated pep talk. I don't mean to diminish it by calling it a pep talk. I just mean I feel better. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, one thing that came to mind when you were talking, you know, as I was thinking, like, New York and California are similar states in a certain way, which is that uh, it's pretty blue here, you know? Like, it's, like... Um, but, you know, I think <laughs> because a lot of people are very right wing, but they've, you know, uh, a D next to their name, like, you know, people, it, I guess, okay, I'm all over the place, but the larger point that I'm trying to make is that, like, we are, I think, you know, expecting, like, right wing politics to look like Donald Trump or Tucker Carlson or DeSantis. And I think that there's, you know, areas of the country where it is going to look like that and where it does. But I also think that, like, the type of right-wing politics, you know, that we see in, like, New York and California can be much more insidious, where it's, like, deeply anti-homeless, deeply pro-cop. I mean, like, we just fucking, they're you know, just put cops on like every single subway car and like cameras and stuff now. And, you know, just all of this like anti-bail reform rhetoric we're seeing. And it's like, you know, I've looked at like the donors for some of these people and it's like the same guys that are donating to Donald Trump. It's not different, you know, but I, mm -hmm. I think that, uh, you know, even for like the run of the mill libs that, don't want to be right wing like they're you know they're not socialists or communists or anarchists or anything but you know they they really hate republicans it's tough to you know get like those kind of people to see like no even if this person has a d next to their name this is right wing politics it's not it, you know it like shouldn't even be confusing you know yeah i mean the the bleeding i think i i tweeted this the other day i actually firmly believe this the bleeding edge 
of, you know, kind of an authoritarian politic in this country. Yeah, it's Ron DeSantis. It's also London breed, you know, the oh, mayor. Oh, God, of yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I think that we, you know, look, the left, we're, we should be very unapologetic about like having these criticisms for that because it's, you know, or of these people, because it, it's absolutely right. You know, it is, you know, authoritarianism with, you know, uh, donkey, you know, symbol characteristics or what have you, you know, like I think, or donkey mascot characteristics. I don't think that we we're under, we should be under any illusion about that. I think also like, look, a place like LA, I think that's obviously another good example of that, where the city has been dominated by the Democratic Party for so long. And yet, what what is that? What has that meant? It has meant an increasingly anti- um, homeless politics. It has meant also, like recently, the city council members saying that they were actually on the side of the poor, on the side of the marginalized, on the side of, for example, the Latino community. But what they then had as opposition to that was the Black power base that ex has existed in the city for decades. It has also meant ignoring, apparently, their own decisions to constantly undermine tenant protections, to weaken possible new tenant protections, like with the anti-harassment ordinance here in L.A., and of course, increasing the power of the police to, to police again, uh, poverty, right, in our city. And so to me, that is that is absolutely part and parcel of the story of the growth of authoritarianism in a, in a form of the right, you know? So so I, I mean, I totally agree with that. It's why, again, we cannot have any illusions or romanticism uh, about this. It's also why the left should always be very careful about the kind of relationship that it has with elected officials, period, right? Yeah. It's not as though these folks come out of nowhere. A lot of the leftists who come out of or are, or some of the city council members, I should say, that are um, on city council now and who were thought of as progressive you know, leaders a decade or two ago, they actually did kind of start from a semi kind of progressive sort of background. A lot of them look where they've ended up, you know, yeah. and, and, and they were, they were, they were able to degrade that. We just final thing on this. They were able to get to that point because there was no movement behind them to push them. There was no movement to scare them outside yeah. of the, the hall of the city hall. That ultimately is always the lesson we should remember that we always have to be bigger than they are. That is the only way in which any kind of political class that we elect will only ever be, you know, even erstwhile allies for us. Yeah, I, I just was, I'm sorry, I was interrupting you. I just, you know, I just wanted to agree, you know, I'm thinking about it, like, in the context of, like, I know much less about LA politics than I do New York politics, but DSA in New York has been pretty successful. We have gotten a lot of socialists in office here, and, yeah. you know, now the, uh, now the task at hand is, is trying to rein them in, you know, sometimes or get them to do, you know, obviously our most famous example of an elected socialist is AOC. You know, I'm not like here to AOC bash. I'm glad she's in office. I'm not trying to get her out of office. But I just mean, you know, when we see things like, you know, socialists voting for the Patriot Act or, you know, $40 billion for war funding with not a lot of questions, you know, or, you know, like, here in, um, you know, with regard to housing, like, you know, it was a, it was a socialist who, you know, basically teamed up with the, with our mayor um, to, you know, do uh, a pretty complicated partial privatization scheme for NYCHA, which is, you know, like, I don't want to bash it too much because it's like a really, really complicated problem and it may genuinely have been the only way to get 
funding for things that people desperately needed at this point. So I'm not trying to knock it, but I will say that, you know, what the result has been is there have been multiple instances in New York politics recently, specifically with housing, but probably on a lot of other issues too, where the elected socialist has been uh, battling their working class constituents, you know, and like, instead of, you know, seeing like that socialist in office is like, yeah, you are here to represent my interests. I think probably because of like the constraints of like, you know, being in, you know, to, to go all Lenin bourgeois parliament or whatever, like, it's just, those people just kind of end up like having to make choices to do things that they're, they are going to have opposition from, from the left, from the working class, you know? Absolutely. And this is why, you know, I, I maybe surprisingly, I have been asked a couple of times in the past, like, would you ever consider running for office? And I always have to remind them being like, what? So that I could, so that I have to be forced to make compromises with people that I think are bad. Like, I, I don't know that, I don't think that's me, you know, like, I don't, I don't think I can do that. You know, today I, uh, uh, you know, you know, unfortunately, right? Uh, we heard of the the sad passing of Mike Davis, you know, towering figure of the left. And you know, I, I was talking to a friend of of mine here in LA about it, and and you know, I said to to him, I was like, look, one of the things I always lo loved most about Mike was the fact that he was so deeply uncompromising in his politics. And my friend laughed. He's like, LOL, like you know, of course you would like that most about him, you know. The reality of electoral politics is that, right, that there are, there's an element of compromise that comes from that kind of style of politics, short of you having like a massive majority on your end and really, frankly, discipline and and a real belief in the project to be able to, you know, counter counteract the, the tendency towards degradation, if you will, right, or the tendency towards uh, in some way, shape or form uh, undermining the very politics that got you elected in the first place. The reality is that these folks get into office and then they want to survive in office. I think that is just a, a basic banal truth of electoral politics. To me, the response to that is it to, to only demand more of them, although we should absolutely always demand more of them. It's to, again, build the structures outside of them so that we can actually realistically threaten them. You know, like I, I genuinely believe that like the only way that, you know, um, like, and you know, I say this as a DSA member as well, you know, having more elected DSA members, it would be great if by the end, by the end of this electoral cycle, we're going to probably have like, I don't know, a quarter of the uh, city council members here in Los Angeles, maybe a little bit more even, in fact, um, who will have been elected with the support of the DSA. Some of them, I think, are dues paying members, etc. You know, if all goes well, and that's great, but we still need to be able to hold them accountable. We need to be, we need to put the fear of God in them, right? Yeah. And to put the fear of God in them, we need to be able to have the the, the construct, the constructed infrastructure, right? Of, of a left-wing politics outside of them. We have to learn, and I mean this uh, deeply, and, and actually, frankly, it's a lesson that I've taken from like, you know, the better moments in the, the Bolivarian experiments in, in South America, we have to learn how to make our politicians history, right? And I mean that in this, in the sense of we have to make them superfluous to the needs of the people, right? We have to be able to do that, and that means in our ability to be able to, like, you know, uh, to to fend for our communities. It means to be able to defend our communities, to be able to to actually provide for them the things that they cannot uh, or are not getting from 
uh, their elected officials. And it means, again, being able to push these elected officials constantly to the left. The movement builds a horizon. And if we have to, you know, knock some heads, even among our purported allies who are elected to the city council or to the state legislature or beyond, then so be it. That is exactly the role that we have. And I have absolutely no time for any comrade who basically says that we have to, in some way, shape, or form, be understanding. We know, we understand. It doesn't mean that we have to just, you know, we have to kind of roll over for these folks just because we got them into office. I think that is a very wrongheaded way of looking at it. Yeah. So on that note, you know, like we're talking about, you know, being like uncompromising in office, but like, I'm wondering for you as someone who's been organizing a long time, like how does it play out interpersonally and like, and specifically what I mean is like, you know, a couple things like how do you decide like you know who you're going to engage with as like hey like let's get you on my side versus like you're just an enemy like for example you know like you know i think like uh in yeah i mean like in csa right now here like you know we're we're I think it's a it's a big big question, you know. Like in in recent days, like you know, people have been talking about like you know bringing more uh, religious people into DSA, you know, which making them more comfortable. Which I honestly think is a good idea. I'm not religion. I'm not religious. I'm an atheist, but like it doesn't bother me. A lot of people are religious, you know. Mm-hmm. But then even things like you know people who you know may um you know be like at the extreme end like trying to you know use dsa to you know recruit for capitalist organizations and like you know where do we want to like i guess you know how do you be like comradely and also uncompromising like in just from your experience organizing for a long time a lot of people are not gonna like this but sometimes the uncompromising side has to win over the comradely side look within even the tenants union there have been moments where you just have a brutal political battle in front of you with people who are trying to shift the politics of your organization to the right and you just have to wage that battle and you have to stand your ground you you can't give in to that right and so i i know that that sounds really deep like deeply controversial i'm going to say that it has nothing to do with any kind of internal dsa politics because i don't feel like i'm actually like well versed in in the the like the the kind of ideological battles within the the dsa at this point um thank god because <laughs> i know i know it can get really fractious but i think that we do we should be very crystal clear that there are moments what you have you have decisions to make. And at some point, the comradeliness has to make way for the principle at hand, right? And so I, that would be my response to, to that bit. With, so within your own organization, right? Within like the spaces that we organize, for the most part, we should try, we, we, we constantly have to do wage battle in a comradely way in which, by which I mean debate and, and trying to move people, right? In, in their politics. Uh, but in other ways, though, right, and there are moments where, again, there is no room for that kind of compromise, then you just have to wage open sort of factional battle against that. I think so that's just the reality of politics. That is politics, right? Yeah. Now, when it comes to, like, institutions outside of the organizations that you're in, I think it's much clearer then, right? I mean, for the most part, when I, I'm going to always start, and I'm serious, even if we, you know, I live in, in a city council district, 
with one of the kind of three council members that was caught on tape recently, if and when he he goes and we elect a, a, you know someone else and hopefully it's a, a, a someone from within the movements, I'm still not going to necessarily consider them. I'm going to start from a position of skepticism because to me, talk is cheap. And what really matters are going to be their actions, right? While in office. And there have been moments where people who, you know, are purportedly not of our, our ideological background, right? Who in fact, in many ways are not good people have done good by the movement, right? In the past, as an example, one of the city council members that just, I think the other day, his racketeering trial just started, okay, here in Los Angeles. He was caught by the feds. He's no longer in office. He's a, a former city council member of my district now, CD14. You know, that that guy, again, very much not like a, a, a an ally by any stretch of the imagination, was also the person that the tenant movement was able to push to, to get an anti-harassment ordinance for tenants onto the agenda for the city council. It ended up getting watered down after he left. But the point is that we still got something out of him. Ultimately, to me, a politician's the politician, right? A politician's a politician's a politician. And so if you look at it from that perspective, I think you're always going to find yourself less, um, how can I put it, Dis you know, disappointed in the failures and foibles of these people because ultimately they have their own agendas at all times, right? Yeah. We should always start from thinking and reminding ourselves that we have an agenda too, and it's our job to push them. Final thing I was gonna say though, like Kate, just to, to respond, like another kind of illustrative aspect of this is, you know, whenever I've organized tenants, there always comes a time early on in the organizing campaign where the members, the tenants will say to us, if these are new members, right? These are tenants who came to us in crisis that will tell us, we should talk to our city council members. They might do something. They always say good things about, you know, tenants' yeah. rights. My job, and I, because I believe deeply in the idea of organizing as popular education and not me just lecturing people. Yeah. Is to tell tenants like, look, in our experience, this is kind of how this plays out, but we're going to do what you want, right? To take, seriously the organizing principle of, of you know of accompaniment right of walking with the, the oppressed and the marginalized and walking with the working class in its struggle to me means oftentimes going to the city council like meetings with tenants and watching their faces as they encounter resistance as they hit the brick wall of city hall right yeah so yeah that makes a lot of sense being able to like get what they want out of their elected officials, that is an instructive political moment for them. My job as an organizer is to walk with them through that process. Sometimes the elected official will do something good and then I will consider them an ally. But up until that point, I don't I don't take for granted that even purported allies are allies until they do what we when we need them to do, frankly, you know? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's really no substitute for just seeing something with your own eyes it really isn't for any of us you know it's I transactional think... and i don't care that we have to be honest about that right yeah. there's an element of transactionality to it yeah so just you know um just to switch gears i did want to make sure that we get into a little bit your work with the dat collective uh which is i know a totally new topic but just tell me a little bit about what the dat collective is what you guys are doing Right. I, I actually think in a lot of ways it's a continuation, right, of my Yeah, kind of that's true. <laughs> it is not, not the sense totally like, new topic. Yeah. I know, absolutely. I just think like in the debt, you know, the debt collective folks have always said this and insisted on this idea, for example, within the housing space that, you know, tenants unions are a form of debtors unions, right? And what we mean by that is that 
the leverage that tenants have over their landlords is very similar to the kind of leverage that debtors have over their creditors, generally speaking, which is I have the power to withhold my payment, right? I have my power to withhold my rent. I have my power to withhold my student loans. That gives me leverage over the institutions that I'm, I'm you know, kind of confronting to make demands, right? demands towards kind of a, a, a broader sort of political horizon beyond not just debt, but towards, you know, beyond the thing that is bad, but towards the thing that is good, the thing that we need, right? Which is to, to you know, um, get, for example, college for all, to get housing for all, right? To make sure that we have green social housing for all, right? Okay, so that is like the, 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 the general sort of premise there. Now, in terms of my work specifically, I also primarily work in the housing space, actually. Okay. Um, we developed here in, in California this, this thing called the, the, the Tenant Power Toolkit. You can actually visit it by going to tenantpowertoolkit.org. Uh, and what it does is fairly simple, but also I think kind of revolutionary. What it does is it allows tenants to be able to file a response, a legal response to their, the legal eviction papers served to them by their landlords. Now, why does that matter? It matters because here in California, procedurally, Tenants only have five days, on most circumstances, only have five days to be able to file a response to the, the legal paperwork that their landlord serves them. So a landlord will serve you with your unlawful detainer, in other words, your legal eviction papers from the court. And when you get that, you only have five days to respond. If you don't file a response with the court within those five days, then you automatically can get a default judgment entered against you, which means that you've automatically lost your eviction trial. And that immediately after that, a landlord can apply to get the sheriff to violently evict you. Oh that God. is horrible. In California, literally California is one of the worst states in the union for this. I think Florida is one of the only states that has as restrictive an answer period as California does and with the same consequences as California has, despite all of the kind of, again, the blue sort of liberal, you know, imaginary that, that, that California invokes in people, we have some of the most procedurally regressive, uh, you know, eviction laws in the, in the country. And so we developed this toolkit to be able to respond to that. And already we've already been able to, to help prepare and to e-file in LA County uh, over a thousand uh, eviction uh, answers with this toolkit, which is pretty impressive. And in fact, in, in LA County, we've estimated that something like 8% of all the answers that are being prepared uh, in the county are likely coming from our toolkit at this point. So it's Amazing. already making a, a pretty big waves. Now, in terms of what the value that is, it's not only to be able to serve as a, a, a form of legal mutual aid to tenants, we also connect tenants to, to organizing on the ground. We connect people to the Tenants Union here in LA, to the LA Tenants Union. We connect folks to the uh, uh, the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, ACE. Um, ACE, you might know their, their New York counterpart, New York Communities for Change. We basically send them to, to ACE here in, in, in California outside of uh, LA. And we're also connecting folks to other tenant organizations and tenants unions on the ground. Plus, we help them connect with legal service providers on the ground. The idea, though, again, is to be able to kind of build power at the ground level. This is an organizing toolkit, first and foremost. It's a legal mutual aid uh, toolkit, second. That's awesome. I I love that. I, I've been thinking a lot, you know, like, debt has been in the news a lot lately, uh, primarily with, like, student loans and Biden's cancellation on it, which I think... If I'm understanding this correctly, like it, it's they're currently like the process is has been stayed, right? Because of this lawsuit that the Cato Institute is doing. So, you know, 
uh, that's horrible. But <laughs> like, you know, what, what is, what do you see as like the future of the student loan battle and where it goes from here? I think that the future of the student loan battle is going to be the future of whether or not is going to depend on whether or not we stay organized, right? We're still going to have a declared student debt strike, you know, come the beginning of repayments because we haven't got what we wanted, right? Yeah, that's true. It's that, that is I a lot of people and I think that to I, I mean, there's going to be the people who are uh like organizing with others to not pay it, but there's going to be a lot of people that are just going to be like fuck you, I'm never paying this again, you know? Absolutely. Like, <laughs> Absolutely. And I think I think that ultimately for me the the point is that you know, we the debt collective is not just going to be like, oh, we want a partial victory by that. That's not how we operate. Like we still want full student debt cancellation. We still need it. It's not that we want it. It's that we need it. Right. We still need student debt cancellation and we still need college. More importantly, we need college to be free. Right. So that no one will ever have to like take exactly. out student loans to be able to get themselves educated. So have we won? No. We, we've got a partial victory and we're happy for that. And we're happy for the literally millions of people who are going to be be helped by this. You know, I saw a statistic that said, I think it was like Biden announced that 22 million people have applied for relief already. Again, over 20 million people were going to get, you know, qualify for automatic relief, i.e. for all of their um, debt to be discharged. That is a monumental victory if we can get beyond the kind of horrible people at the Cato Institute, right? And yeah. all these other bosses in the Supreme Court. But ultimately, we still have not what we want, got not got what we wanted, which is a full cancellation of this debt. And again, ultimately, the the you know making a college education, education generally a right for people, right? Like that is still something that we're fighting for. That is still what we're going to demand, and the, the battle for that has not ended. If anything, it's just moved on to the the next phase, right? Yeah. Uh, of that battle. And I think you know, I mean, like as much as it can potentially be uh, potentially like d deflating to you know to have like these you know sort of like neoliberal compromises of like oh look you know we did this uh extremely uh half measured that we mean means tested and stuff like that it also can be the opposite where you know like hey look we fought we won something stands to reason fight more win more you know um and I think it's amazing that people are, you know, uh, doing so much to, you know, to kind of keep keep the eye on the prize, I think, you know. We should never declare any easy victories. I actually have to say that in the tenant movement here in California, there have been unfortunately moments like that with when certain policy kind of wins have been won. And every single time it's left a bitter taste in my mouth. What actually makes me feel so good about the student, like, you know, kind of uh, aid or rather the student debt announcement a couple of months ago is precisely the fact that we very intentionally talked about this within the debt collective. And we arrived at what I think has been very, very positive messaging, right? It's like, we're not going to declare an easy victory. Number one, this wasn't easy, but number two, we haven't got everything that we wanted. We're happy that we got something for millions of people, but we're still, we still have so much more to do. Never declare easy victories. We, we are moving forward uh, again with the struggle. And I'm actually very proud of this organization for, for you know, I think messaging this kind of partial victory um, in a way that's a little bit nuanced, but that still very much makes it clear that the battle is not over, or rather the war is not over. Yeah. This specific battle is over. 
Yeah, I, I've seen that messaging, and I, I thought they've always done a very good job. Yeah, I mean, you know, the kind of like, uh, you know, emotional core of Obama-era politics was, we're getting half, be happy with half. Right, it's immature right. to ask for more. And, you know, the worse things get for people, the less half feels like, okay, you know? Okay. And um, I think like you were saying earlier, it is... You know, as much as it is uh, frustrating and sad and, and sometimes really horrible, like it is also an opportunity to, you know, get more people um, on board with like with the things that could actually create like a much better world, not like a marginally better means tested world, you know? That's um, right. So where can people find you and stay in touch with, you know, what you're up to, how to support your projects and get involved. Absolutely. If you really want to suffer, I would follow my follow me on Twitter. You can go to rcmoya84 on Twitter where I'm still uh unfortunately very active. Beyond that, I would really encourage folks to check out our our organizations. Honestly, go to uh, the Deck Collective, go to deckcollective.org. Uh join us. Like, you know, we're a membership-based organization, a dues-paying membership organization. That is what gives us the power, the ability to be able to fight for these kind of victories. So join us, go to deckcollective.org. If you are in LA, I would again encourage you to sign up for and become a member of the LA Tenants Union, right? Go to latenantsunion.org. Uh, fight for your local tenants union locally, wherever the hell you are. The Autonomous Tenant Union Network nationally is helping people organize tenants unions. Search them out. Look for your local tenants union. And if there isn't one, reach out to me, reach out to, to, to Atun, reach out to these institutions. We can help you build a damn tenants union in your area. And if you're in the DSA, frankly, go yourself and, and demand that your chapter help form an autonomous tenants union. I'm working with DSA uh, organizers at the moment or members in various cities, actually. It's really exciting. We haven't announced anything because things are, are, are happening behind the scenes, but we're, we're working together to try to form tenants unions in a couple of cities at the moment. That is exactly what we need to be doing. Again, there is room for hope, but we have to be able to build it on the ground. It's not going to happen on its own, and it's certainly not going to be the gift of any politician, even the purportedly best of our lefty uh, politicians. It's up to us to be able to win them. Amazing. Thank you so much. It has been great talking with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kate. Just listen to